I'd invite you uh, to look with me in the, in the Word of God this morning. We're going to look at chapter 16 of the book of Romans. So those of you that might just be joining us this, this morning, we are uh, looking at the whole of Scripture this year, looking at the Bible as a four-part story. And that's really important because most of us have probably grown up in situations in which we've thought or been taught that the Word of God is a two-part story, that there's rebellion and redemption. And that has caused a lot of issues in our lives. It ends up be, meaning that uh, when we, whatever we've learned or derived from the Scripture, it has been more like advice or principles to live by. And that's not the right way to look at the Scripture. The Scripture is much more than two parts. There are actually four. And those four parts actually form the way in which we look at the entire world. So that we understand why we were made, what happened, what fixes everything, and where we're going. It's much more comprehensive to think about the Bible, the story of God, in four parts. That there's creation, rebellion, redemption, and ultimately restoration. So even if you're here and you're just thinking, what in the world does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to follow a Jesus? What's the message of the Bible? That's it. That we look at all of reality as a story. The story of God that has those four parts. And that's how we can understand our own experience. That's how we can understand who we are. That's how we can understand how to live with hope. So this morning I'm going to read uh, Romans 16 to you. And it might sound like a little bit of a random uh, passage because Paul is kind of concluding his letter to the church in Rome. And there are going to be a lot of names. So bear with me because I'm going to make some mistakes. Uh, but they matter. Every word of God matters. Every word. He cares about his people by name. So even if it's a little tedious to listen to me mess up names, just know God loves these people. Just like he knows your name. I mean, he loves you too. And before I read, I meant to say this from the, from the outset. Sorry, I got to shift gears on you. Um, I wanted to give you a health update. Um, I had the most important part of my surveillance this past week, which I was not expecting. So my tests aren't for a few more weeks. But something happened this week, and I uh, ended up having a, a, a big part of my surveillance this week. So I should get the results back in about two weeks. And if you want to pray for me that um, God would be gracious to me and would allow me to wait. I don't like waiting, especially when there seems to be a lot hanging in the balance, you know. So if you want to pray for grace for me to wait, and if you want to pray for grace that I would be able to uh, cast myself on God over and over as I wait, I would really appreciate that. Because I'm anxious and I worry. Um, and so if you would pray for me in that way, I would really appreciate it. Um, and I'll let you know how it goes when I get the results back in a couple weeks. You'll be some of the first people to know. So please, please pray for me in that regard. All right. So let's jump in, remembering the four-part story. And... Being patient with Dave as he reads these names. Listen to this. This really is the word of God. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in the way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, 
who was the first convert to, to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelitus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Isn't there a street on the outer banks named Tryphena or Tryphosa? Is it, maybe it's in Hatteras? Anyway, I remember driving and seeing these names. I was like, wow, this is weird. Anyway, greet the beloved Persistus who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the, brother, and, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, more of you, less of us. For your glory. In Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to tell you three conversations I had this week with three of my friends. The first one was with a friend who has been without a steady job for the last three years. Matter of fact, he's worked very little over the last three years. And in talking with him and his struggles, he has four boys. And figuring out what he's gonna do, he said to me, you know, Dave, I've realized through all this how important friends are. I never realized how important friends were until I've been through this. The second conversation I had this week with a friend was, uh, was somewhat of a celebration. Wednesday marked nine years of him being sober. It's a time that we could rejoice together and talk about all that God has done. The third conversation I had was with another friend of mine whose cancer had returned. And it's back in his mouth again. And he's not very old at all. 
And I went over to talk with him the day before his surgery this past week. He ended up having over a 12-hour surgery in which he lost at least 80%, if not all, of his tongue. I spoke with him, and he said some of the last words he will ever say. What, what do you have in your life? What is it that can enable you to embrace pain? I know all of you have pain. You know that I have pain. You've been with me on my journey. What is it that you have that enables you to embrace pain? What is it? How is it that you can live into and access the power to overcome? All of us deal with pain. All of us have things in our lives that we have to overcome, that we need to overcome, right? What is it that enables you to embrace pain? How can you live into the power to overcome? What I want to show you from Romans 16 is that there are five essentials that you can't live without. Five essentials that you cannot live without. Because in this world, you're going to have pain. And you're going to feel the tension of that pain that you have to embrace. And you're going to sense that there are things that you need to overcome. Five essentials that you cannot live without. Here's number one. Look at verse 20. Beloved, look up. Your enemy is doomed. God says in verse 20, Paul says to the church, God says through Paul to people like you and me, I will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Your enemy is doomed. Now let me ask you, who are your enemies? You got names for people? You got ideologies? You got things that you really can't stand? What shape? What's the name? What's the, idea? What's the shape of the enemies in your life? Because let me tell you, they may be real to some extent, but your real enemy is doomed. And that needs to put perspective into your life and my life. And this language that is used here is reminding us of the beginning of the story. Do you remember after God created and we rebelled? God immediately comes in at our rebellion and says that someone was going to come from the woman and that someone is named, what, what's his name again? And he would crush the head of the serpent. Do you remember that? Now his heel was going to be bruised, but he was going to crush the head of the serpent. And on the cross is when he crushed the head of the serpent. At his resurrection, our Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. So make no mistake that he's wiggling around, but his head has been stomped on. And I hope that you like that imagery because God gave it to you to rejoice in and revel in. And he gives us this language in Romans chapter 16 to remind us that because of what Christ has done through living his perfect life, through taking the greatest weapon that your enemy could have, death, and overcoming it, 
Because of all that Jesus has done, God now adds finishing language. Jesus has crushed your enemy. And the day is coming because of what Christ has done that God will crush your enemy under your feet. Now that is something to shout about. Doesn't matter what, who you think your enemies are. This is your real enemy and he is done. And isn't it nice to know that someone is doing this for you? Because we are no match for this serpent. We are no match for Satan. We are no match for him. He doesn't know our thoughts, but man, does he see what we do and say. He's a great observer, and he's really deceitful. But because of Jesus, D-O-N-E, he is done. He's doomed. And beloved, here's how you can, if you will, access that. Here's how you live into that truth. Here's how you live into that essential thing that you can't live without, that your enemy's doomed. Every time you listen to God's word, you are furthering the demise of your enemy. Every time you listen to truth, every time you're willing to deal with truth, every time that you're willing to call a lie a lie, you are weakening his power. Every time. Every time that you decide, I'm going to love my enemies. Every time you decide, I'm going to live by faith. Every time you pray, you are weakening his agenda. Every time. Because you know who you're accessing when you pray and you listen to truth and you follow the truth? Jesus, the guy that crushed his head. So this has nothing to do with you just getting better, becoming a better version of yourself, manning up, uh, uh, strength. No, this is you living into the reality of what Jesus has done. And you can't live without this because we are gonna face pain and there are gonna be things that we need to overcome. And to know that our enemy is doomed is essential for us to live. Number two, Avoid the right things. I don't know what you're avoiding in your life. My hunch is, if you're like me, there are times where you want to avoid conversations. You want to avoid people. You want to avoid circumstances. You want to avoid bad circumstances. I want to avoid bad test results. What is it that you want to avoid, really? What is it that you spend your time trying to avoid? That thought, those thoughts? Facing, this, facing, facing truth? Do you avoid facing reality and facing truth? That oftentimes doesn't make us look so good when we face the truth? What is it that you're avoiding? Because Paul is telling us to avoid the right things. Look at verse 17 and 18. He says, avoid those who through flattering words deceive those and create, they create obstacles to overcome and they deceive those who are naive. Now, don't answer out loud, but do any of you think in here that you're not naive? All of us are naive. If you're sitting here thinking, I'm not naive, you're the naive one. <laughs> and if, further, if you think, well, I'm not naive about this in my life, that's where you're naive. We all are prone to being naive about everything. And Paul writes this about 
the type of people that use flattering words try to find those who think that they're not naive because that's when they, realize, that's when, that's when they know they got an in because they found a naive person. The person that doesn't want to think, the person that doesn't want to process, the person that doesn't want to face reality, the person that doesn't have perspective. And what Paul is saying here, what God is telling us through Paul is that there are those who twist things, there are those who create obstacles that really aren't there. In other words, he's saying that there are those who emphasize things that God has not commanded. And it sounds so good. It sounds so clever. It sounds insightful. It sounds like, ooh, this is another level. But what's happening is that we're being deceived. What's happening is that we are following things that God has not commanded. And we're treating them as if they are what God has commanded. Or extra. That, yeah, I know this stuff that God's explicitly said, but right here, oh, now, this is what we really need to get on. Paul says, avoid them. Avoid that. Avoid those who deceive. Avoid those who twist words. Avoid those who um, spin things. Avoid those who create obstacles. Avoid those who emphasize what God has not commanded. Avoid them. Doesn't say confront. Says that in other places, but not here. These folks are divisive and sinister and prey upon people and parts of our lives where we think that we have it together. And Paul says, avoid them. So whatever it is you're avoiding in your life, reality check, should you really be avoiding it? Because what Paul says here is, avoid this. Avoid the right thing. Don't let those who, you, who flatter you get in. Don't do it. He even adds in verse 19, this little phrase. Did you notice it? Um, be wise to what is good and innocent to evil. Mm. Be wise to what is good and innocent to evil. Again, this takes us all the way back to the beginning of the story. Do you remember the original temptation? Here's a piece of fruit from the, knowledge, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember this? You see, the temptation was to, by deceit, put good and evil together and make evil look good. That's a temptation that we've struggled with for millennia. In other words, when Eve saw the fruit, do you remember the phrases? Do you remember the phrases that are associated with Adam and Eve when they looked at the temptation? They thought that it was pleasing to the eyes, that it was good for food, that it would make them wise. Do you see? Good and evil were put together and deception was mixed in so that evil looked good. Attractive to the eyes. Good for tasting. Look what this can get me. Wrong. Paul is saying avoid the right things. In other words, friends, do you know the difference between things that are essential and secondary and tertiary in the Christian life? Do you understand good doctrine? Are you growing in good doctrine? Does doctrine mean something for you and to you in your life? So that as you understand the Bible and understand doctrine more, you understand this is primary. Did you notice the call to worship this morning? 
1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I deliver to you matters of first importance, primary. That means that there are things that are secondary. Can you discern the difference between a man-centered message and a God-centered message? Do you know it if you're being taught the gospel and learning the gospel in your small groups and in your Bible studies? Do you dis can you discern the difference between someone mentioning Jesus' name and teaching and preaching to you the gospel? Can you discern the difference in what is true and primary and what is flattery? and what is just tickling your ears and telling you what you want. Can you understand the difference between entertainment and sitting under the truth of God's word? Do you know the difference? Because God is concerned. The Holy Spirit is concerned with all of us growing in our discernment and in understanding what is actually true. And we live in a culture that doesn't want to acknowledge truth, where we can say our own truth, where we don't have to face the truth, oftentimes about how bad we are. We want to just act like it doesn't exist. And Paul is saying, this is essential. You can't live without this. You've got to avoid the right things. Beloved, it doesn't matter if you've been in a church 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, or one week. Beg God to give you discernment that you might understand what he really says in his word and what he says is important and what he says is secondary and what he says is even third level. Because if someone tries to say that third level stuff is primary, you're in trouble. You're in a bad place. And if you're in a place where people are not emphasizing the matters of first importance, by God's grace, may we recognize it. And may we cling to what is true. Number three, no one is unwelcome. No one is unwelcome. Five essentials that Dave can't live without, that you can't live without. Our greatest enemy is doomed. Avoid the right things. No one is unwelcome. When you read back through this list, I know you, you are gracious and kind to bear with me. There are names on this list that are Jewish names, Latin names, and Greek names. No one's unwelcome. There are people that are mentioned, like in verse 10 and 11, that are talking about those who have high position in public office, verses 10 and 11, to give you those names. I won't say them because I struggle with them. High positions. There are other names in this chapter that are describing the lowest of the low. No one is unwelcome. Of this list of 26 names, nine or more are women in the first century, that is almost unheard of. Women had no social status in the first century. Their testimony was not allowed in court. They were thought of as property. And here they are in the word of God. No one has a higher view of women than the Lord Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean that it lines up with everything that we want. But it means he's right. 
And here you have Paul mentioning women and their significance in the life of the church and who they are by name. And as soon as they get outside of their church community, they are thought of as nothing. But in God's people, they are vitally important. Isn't that special? How about verse 23? Epinatus, I think, is the name there. He is the city manager. You know what that means? He's the head maintenance guy. How about that? How about verse 15? Uh, Philologus, how about that? You know that guy's name? Did you recognize that in verse 15? It's a really uncommon name in the first century. You know what it means if you gloss it? Literally, it means lover of words. But if you gloss it, it means chatterbox. <laughs> so here's a guy who everyone knows, and he is known as a chatterbox. Do you think we have a chatterbox or two at Christ Prez? By the way, it wasn't demeaning him at all. No one is unwelcome. Greek, Latin, Jewish, men, women, rich, poor. No one is unwelcome. Four, no compartmentalization. No compartmentalization. Look at verse one and two. Here's one of the women. Her name was Phoebe. Guess what? More than likely, she was the one that took the letter from Paul and hand-delivered it to the church in Rome. So that what you read today was given by a woman named Phoebe that you have in your hands that you can read. This was her name, Phoebe. Without Phoebe, we don't have Romans. Because of God using Phoebe, we can read it today. This is a letter written in 58. 58. In 2023, we got this letter because of Phoebe doing her thing. And if you look in verse one and two again, it's not just that she more than likely was the one that delivered the letter. She was also a patron of the church and of Paul also, which meant that she saw her resources to be used to the furthering of the church, to plant churches, to strengthen churches. She gave of her resources. She was a patron of God's kingdom. All of us can be too. Isn't this awesome to think about and read? How about verse three and four? After you get through Phoebe, we read about Aquila and Prisca. Did you notice those names? Guess what? They risked their life for the Apostle Paul. And we have no idea what that means. But his audience did in Rome. It must have been a well-known story that Aquila and Prisca did something in which they could die so that the Apostle Paul could live. How about Mary? Round verse six says something about um, Mary who has worked hard for you. Paul seems to be saying, here's a woman in the church who has done all kinds of behind the scenes stuff. She's worked really hard for you, church in Rome. Apparently she doesn't reside there. In other words, there are going to be people in the life of the church who are active in the kingdom who are doing things behind the scenes. Do you think we have those at Christ Pres? Yes, we do. I hope that you know them by name. God knows them. He sees what they do. And most of the time, people that do things behind the scenes aren't wanting public recognition, are they? But God sees them. God sees how they serve. God sees what they do. 
No compartmentalization. How about even more? Look at, let's see, around verse 13, look at Rufus and his mother. Paul even says, she became like a mother to me. You know what it's like to have a mother that's not really your mother? Who cares for you like your own mother? Who's the one that can rebuke you in ways that only your mom can? Who's the one whose hugs mean like no other hug in the world? Whose advice is more helpful than anybody else's? Now realize you perhaps didn't have a great mother. I get that. But if you've had a good mother, you know what it's like. And it's like Paul saying, it's not only that I had one mom, it's like I had two. And when you meet that kind of person, you realize that that's just their gift. And they're a great mother to all kinds of people. They know just when to hug. They know when to listen. They know when to say things. And man, can they give you the zingers that you need. Paul is talking about this woman in that way. And how about even more than that? Look at verse 23 with Gaius and hospitality. And there were others mentioned in the chapter. Opened up his house. He housed the church and other churches as well. Beloved, it's not just that your enemy is doomed. It's not just that you need to avoid the right things. It's not just that no one is unwelcome. It's that there's no compartmentalization. You can't compartmentalize your life. You can't say, this is my work life, and this is what I do on the weekend. You can't say, this is how I do this, and I'm a completely different person here. When you read this chapter and you understand what is being said, they are ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. There are those that love to give. There are those that serve behind the scenes. There are those that function like multiple people's mothers. This is simply people living ordinary life with gospel intentionality, doing whatever they can, wherever they can, for the good of God's kingdom. No one's unwelcome, and there's no compartmentalization. To serve God and to follow the Lord Jesus happens 24-7, 365. And finally, number five, chasing glory. Look how Paul ends this. Look how Paul ends this, 25 through 27. He actually ends the book where he starts it. You remember in chapter one, he says in verse 16, for the gospel is God's power unto salvation. And here he tells us that the gospel is what strengthens us. So that through the preaching of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, meaning teaching Jesus, teaching who he is, teaching what he has done, teaching what he's accomplished, teaching his resurrection, teaching the cross, teaching him as a substitute, teaching him as the one that paid the penalty for our sin in time and history, teaching these things that they are factually historically true and the significance of which is redemption. Teaching these is how we are strengthened this is the way that we grow. This is the way that we become strong in the Lord. We focus on Jesus and understand more about Jesus and what he has done and who he is and what he has accomplished. That's how we grow. Because it's there that we get outside of ourselves and we get into him. 
It's there that we understand that the pain that we go through, he understands. He lived in pain too. He suffered as well. So that Paul says the gospel is what strengthens us. And then he highlights the fact that we are a people of tremendous privilege. He says there was a mystery, something of a mystery in the Old Testament. There are things in the Old Testament that are mm, mysterious. But when the coming of Christ, when Christ came, that mystery became revealed. So there are things that are told about the coming of Christ, and some of the things are very clear, especially for us now, because we have the whole Bible, and we get to look back at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. Make sense? But living then, it seemed strange what was going on. There were still some dots that people had a hard time connecting, which is why God sends his people to talk about Jesus. So that people can understand the Old Testament is all about Jesus. And Paul says, this ultimately leads to the obedience of faith. And then look at the last phrase of this book, to the glory of God. The fifth essential that you can't live without is chasing glory. Chasing glory. You see, we glory in whatever we love. What is it that you love? Because that's what you'll find out what you glory in. I love it when my team wins. I wish the Pirates won yesterday, don't you? And if they had won, we would have gloried in that. Perhaps in Greenville, there would have been some people that gloried too much to an extreme. <laughs> but there would have been some glorying in it, wouldn't there? How about, how about, how about students? How about, how about getting the grades you want, getting that, getting that project finalized? You glory in the accomplishment of those grades? Those, those of you that are professionals, what do you glory in at work? Uh, 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 solving problems? What, what is it that, that you love? What is it that you glory in? Is it a relationship? Is it accomplishing tasks? What is it that you glory in? Because Paul is saying that we should glory in Jesus as we understand the gospel. That we should glory in the fact that Jesus has captivated all of our being. That he has given us an identity and a forgiveness that he has given us a hope that he is going to return and make all things right. That's something to glory in. One of my favorite statements about the cross that hits me over and over and over. I didn't write this. this I ripped this from somebody else. And every time I think about it, it just gets me again. It's a statement that goes something like this. While Jesus was on the cross suffering and in agony, he looked down and he saw his disciples. He saw us denying and abandoning and betraying. And in the greatest act of love in the history of the universe, he stayed. He stayed. He saw us rebelling and denying and wandering and he stayed because that is the only love 
that can bring us back. That's the only love that can reverse our course. It's the only love that we don't know what to do with. But once that love starts to get a hold of us, there's nothing like it. And it allows us to abandon ourselves and want more of that. And in having more of Jesus, we begin to be able to give ourselves away. Well, as we look at this chapter together, we've zoomed in so far, like zoomed in real close, like microscopic look at this chapter. I want us to zoom out. I want us to zoom out, get a bigger picture, and understand the story to see how this all comes together. I'm ripping this from someone else as well. You know, there are three big shifts that have happened that make up the modern world that we experience every day. The first shift happened from land to money and banks. That was roughly in 1397. The second shift that goes into making up of the modern world that we live in is the shift from um, human beings and animals to machinery. 1769, industrial revolution and the steam engine. And then the third shift was this, from wisdom to data in 1948 with the theory of information, which led to the internet that we have today and those cell phone things that we carry around all the time. All that came from that idea and how it's progressed for the last 50 plus years. And there was another time in history where those shifts were the same, the first century. It was the Roman Empire that did the minted coin. It was the Roman Empire that figured out how to leverage force to build stuff. And what all that produced was unbelievable wealth, just like in our time. Unbelievable wealth, unbelievable prosperity, unbelievable progress. And what that's led to is, we talked about last couple weeks, like the externalization of self, so that we define ourselves by what we produce and what we do and all that we are and the progress that we made. And in doing that, we have, for some reason, hollowed out the inside of who we really are. And it's led to depersonalization and it's led to transactional everything. And the goal has been to live for self and to really not need anyone else. Because when you think about it, you do realize that the top 1% of the whole world really don't need anyone else, right? Everyone they think needs them. And they struggle to understand how regular people live because they've accomplished so much and have done so many things. It's led to this profound sense of who really knows me? Who can understand my pain? How in the world do I overcome all these things? And that brings us to the illustration of this whole thing that Paul leaves us with. You know, in the first century, whenever you didn't want your children, there was a place you could take them and just leave them to die. Or, 
because of the depersonalization, you could have children and name them third. Did you notice verse 22? I, Tertius. That means the third. Verse 23 is Quartus, which means fourth. So in a world that has untold wealth in which everyone just seems to be making progress all the time, it really doesn't work out that way. And here's the Apostle Paul dictating the book of Romans. And he pauses, it seems, at the end. And he says, Tertius, third, don't forget to say hi to everybody. And Tertius says, I, third, greet you in the Lord. Do you know the pain of feeling like you don't matter? The pain of depersonalization in the world, the pain of transactional everything. Do you know the pain of that? How about the pain of not being wanted by your parents? How about the pain of having no recognition in the culture at all? The frustration that you're a nobody. At least that's what others think. And here Paul says, Tertius, make sure you say hi. And what had changed his life? What had given him an identity? What had given him community? What had made him matter? What enabled him to face pain? What enabled him to deal with things that he knew he had to overcome but didn't know how? The gospel. That what Jesus had done through his life and death and resurrection meant that he could face the pain in his life and in the world and it meant that he could live into the only power that could enable him to overcome. All because of Jesus. Jesus.